You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. With host, General David Grange. With co-host, Ranger Doug. Until we go down. Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour. Ranger Doug. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is our 17th program on the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. We're still in a series starting last week where we will discuss activities in the war in Ukraine. The title of this program is Russia Moves Into Ukraine. This is part two in that series. Uh, once again this week, ladies and gentlemen, I have the pleasure of welcoming Mr. Dean Chang, who's a friend, but also a great strategist and someone I look to for information every day, and he's somebody to watch if you're not aware of him. He's with the Heritage Foundation, but I'll let him give you particulars on his background. Dean, over to you, please. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm the Senior Research Fellow for Chinese Political and Security Affairs at the Heritage Foundation, where I've been for the last dozen years. Before that, I was with the Center for Naval Analysis and SAIC, a very large government consulting firm, and the U.S. Congress's Office of Technology Assessment, an office that actually no longer exists. Great. And I know you like uh, walks on the beach and pina coladas, which we agreed last week. We, we try to share sometime. Well, so we've had another week go by, and we'll have a panel following our discussion. What I'd like to ask you then is, uh, what have you seen in the, in the uh, succeeding week, and where do you think this may be heading? Over to you. Well, one of the things that is striking is the fact that, of course, um, Europe is once again at war. Uh, we're seeing more. Uh, It's been a week, and various uh, pundits and uh, opinion columns are already making declarations that Russia has lost, that the war is all but won by the Ukrainians, and really it's just a matter of getting to the peace negotiation. And I'm very troubled by this because, one, um, many of the reports indicate that the Russians haven't committed all of their forces. More to the point that they seem to have held back with the use of air power and, more importantly, artillery and rocket uh, forces. And I keep thinking back that if this was May of 1940, there would be all of these reports of German forces pushing into Belgium and Holland. French forces in particular would be fighting well, but uh, withdrawing slowly. That while the Germans were advancing, all was well, and the Allied high commands would be giving press briefings about how things were going okay. And then the Germans come out of the Ardennes, and things rapidly collapse. So, hope that your audience, nobody, I think, would like to see the Ukrainians win more than myself. But I hope that your audience takes a very calm approach to this and waits and sees. What happens, especially as the Russians push more forces into the battle for Kiev, especially as they do try to encircle the city, and they do seem to be also making significant progress, especially in the South. I agree. I think uh, what may be surprising to many audiences, though, is that it's possible for Ukraine to win by simply not losing. And uh, that's been a factor in a number of wars like this. Um, But there is also a very good report by uh, Bill Raggio, of uh, Foundation for Defensive Democracies, that uh, there may be something behind what's going on and that some of what we may see is perhaps deception. 
Have you seen anything uh, that might give you an idea that that may in fact be true and that there's something waiting to happen that we just haven't seen yet? Well, obviously, um, all that the vast majority of us can rely upon is open source literature. But let us keep in mind that the Russians are very good at Maskarovka, um, that according to a number of analysts uh, that we've talked to, uh, Russian doctrine looks a lot like Soviet doctrine, which meant that uh, you would flood the battlefield with a lot of relatively light, uh, fast-moving recon units whose job above all was to identify the enemy and their locations and report back, survival being more optional. Um, a number of those folks have said that, judging from what they are seeing, the vehicles that have been destroyed, the units have been cut off, have been in fact recon detachments, not main force elements. So if that's true, then a lot of the heavy iron, so to speak, the, the uh, tank battalions and the motor rifle battalions that make up much of the bulk of the Russian military and more importantly have the real firepower haven't necessarily hit the front lines yet. The other thing that is also of concern is that um, if the Ukrainians feel that they are doing well, will they flesh out that front line? Will they push more units into the line to hold off, especially if the Russians send their heavier units in, which then creates beautiful targets for massed artillery strikes. And we know that the Russians did such things to Ukrainian forces in eastern Ukraine over the last several years as there have been, as the fighting has gone on uh, over you know, the Donbass and the Luhansk breakaway republics. So it is striking to me how much the Russians aren't doing things that they themselves have done in the past. I think you're right. And I believe, though, that there's a possibility that they have develop various ideas about how to fight, and they may even harken back to their own rich history of maneuver warfare, but that they haven't had much experience in it. And I think that what we're hearing about some of the reports of soldiers may indicate that there still is quite a bit of uh, relationship between command structures where people have to actually defer to the higher level and there's no exercise of initiative. And they're heading into a period when the weather may reduce the soil to less than trafficability, at least for their logistics so while they may have been on a timeline earlier, they may find some difficulty. I mean, they can do airborne, air assault, and so forth, but the logistic columns and even some combat power have to reach those forces to reinforce them, or, or they'll be harassed. Now, to me, there's, a, there's an interesting thing developing where the Russians have not really terrorized the populace. That then makes it difficult to mount a real insurgency because, of course, much of the violence in an insurgency is a, sort of a quid pro quo. So... Uh, do you see anything happening uh, in regards to an insurgency or some kind of violent action that would be originated by the Ukrainians if the Russians seem to restrain themselves? I think that, uh, as you said, first off, if the Russians are acting civilized, then the Ukrainian population is less likely to rise up in an insurgency guerrilla warfare kind of mode. Now, they might still do that. First, the war is still only a week old. Second of all, um, the uh, the Russians haven't taken that many areas. Of course, another piece of this is whether or not we'll get communications out of those areas that the Russians do take. And uh, near Mariupol, down in the south, um, and the, with reports that Kherson has fallen, again in the south, I think it will be interesting to see whether or not there will be reprisals, especially if the population itself uh, undertake sniping attacks, uh, IED attacks, etc. Um, because that is when 
being unable to differentiate between the broad population and the fighters, um, particularly ill-trained conscript militaries tend to overreact and tend to wind up creating uh, atrocities that then in turn uh, generate greater resistance. So I think that, um, again, it's still too early to tell. One hopes that this isn't the path that uh, evolves, but uh, keep an eye on developments in the South where the Russians have conquered a major city now and are making larger territorial gains. That's great. And, you know, there's there's always that ability to conquer a city, but as we learned in places like Baghdad, you still have to hold it. And I'm, I'm uh, intrigued by the fact that in Russia itself, they're having their own populace in some ways demonstrating in cities, which, of course, we wouldn't have seen in, in the Soviet era. But that uh, doesn't that seem to presage the idea that uh, them to try to set up a puppet government and govern Ukraine uh, might also produce problems? Uh, meanwhile, I'm thinking that um, what we have and we'll discuss in the panel to follow when we think about things like whole of nation, whole of government, there's been a, a rather uh, interesting reaction of what I have been calling the whole of world, uh, minus a few, uh, China and others, who seem to be carrying on normal relations with uh, Mr. Putin. But uh, there have been quite a number of developments in the financial system, energy and so forth, that, that give us an idea that, at least for the economic perspective, Russia may be finding itself in a, a negative situation. Now, I realize that the oligarchs used to be the big uh, power brokers, but that uh, today that they've moved a bit beyond that to the fact that now uh, Mr. Putin appears to look to heads of various corporations that do uh, uh, military and security-related things, the, the people they call the Siloviki, uh, for power, kind of like the Praetorian Guard. Uh, we've attempted, I guess, that the world has moved against some of the oligarchs that are the money people, but now the power is actually held by those that are also billionaires, but that, that run these security outfits. Any idea about that? Uh, the idea of kind of a whole-of-world reaction, not organized, and it's not in the UN or EU or anything, but uh, there, there appear to be some moves that are underway to uh, hamper their ability to sustain themselves financially as we go forward. Well, let me be upfront and say that I'm not an economist and I'm not a financial expert. Um, it is striking how many companies, how many corporations, as well as uh, governments are stepping in. Um, SWIFT, of course, has been turned off to at least some of Russia's uh, economic activities. And that means that even if activities do occur, uh, getting paid um, is going to be harder. Uh, that being said... Um, one of the striking things, of course, was that Mr. Putin, uh, prior to the war, um, consistently took money that came in when oil was uh, priced you know, at $80, $90, a barrel, and again, before the use, and sank that money into the military, as though he had learned almost nothing from the Cold War. We, of course, in the West look at that and say, you know, that's why you lost the Cold War, was you overspent on defense. Um, looking at that now, one has to wonder, was that... Uh, a bloody-minded expectation that eventually Russia was going to go back to war under Putin? Was this an effort to build exactly these relationships with the defense complex so that at the end of the day, um, sure, maybe you ran a string of nightclubs and the rest and you could become an oligarch, but the ones who would matter would be the ones who produced fighter jets and tanks and Kalashnikovs. Um, if that was the case, then in a sense... 
Putin may be calling in those markers. One of the other interesting things to keep in mind here, though, is Russia writ large has had the ability to suffer. Uh, it suffered under the Napoleonic invasion. It suffered under the Nazi invasion. It suffered during World War One. Um, it's an interesting question in today's world. One, how that might translate to is the Russian population prepared to suffer? And there's reason to think that just the taste of exposure to the West maybe has altered that calculus. But if they are willing to suffer, then are the sanctions that are being imposed enough to really shift the view? What is the view of the uh, man or woman on the street in uh, Rostov-on-Don, in uh, Magnitogorsk, um, uh, you know, in, in Yekaterinburg? What is their view? Some are protesting, but are the others going to suffer and are they going to be sufficiently unhappy to really undermine Putin the way that World War One, which keep in mind was three years in and massive, gruesome casualties before the overthrow of the Romanov. Great observation. Having made a comment already in the introduction that says that Napoleon learned that, well, as Hitler did, that when you attacked through Ukraine to reach Russia, your first enemy was the winter and then the mud. I believe that, in fact, the Russians in attacking the other way have perhaps discovered that themselves and that their efforts may be complicated by they've developed a number of processes that allow them to fight in ways that may be novel, uh, aping some of what we've done in our our conflicts, beginning with the demonstration that we uh, exhibited during Desert Storm, but then progressing through to uh, Afghanistan, Iraq in the recent period, obviously captured well by Kaliang and uh, Wei Jiangxi in uh, unrestricted warfare, which I'm sure the the PRC and the Russians have have, uh, studied very much, that due to a lack of initiative flowing upward and downward, that uh, some of the things that uh, they've put in place may not, in fact, bear the fruit they expect because the average soldier cannot be an entrepreneur of violence or goodwill or whatever because they're constrained by their command structure. But we'll have to watch that moving forward. I would like to ask if uh, you have any final observations on the way you see things moving. And uh, secondly, uh, do you detect any kind of movement that might be attributed to the influence of the PRC? And or uh, is there anything the PRC may be doing that may show that this is uh, one activity uh, designed to uh, draw our attention while they themselves may be involved in other things in other parts of the world? So with regards to developments in the, on the Ukraine front, uh, what has puzzled me has been uh, the lack of reporting, and maybe it's just open source-wise, um, back in the Soviet days, every truck in Russia had two license plates, a military one and a civilian one, because the Russians, the Soviets, sorry, didn't have enough trucks, and they were going to mobilize the entire national truck capacity to go and supply the front. Um, I'm not sure that Russia today is that much better off. Maybe it is. But to what extent has Russia mobilized its transportation infrastructure to support this conflict? Um, one, this should have hopefully been under observation as an INW indication of the warning issue. But two, it will give us an idea of 
I think, uh, where is going to be the main line of effort, because that's probably going to be where you're going to concentrate an awful lot of your resupply effort. So what is the state of Russia's trucking industry? Where are most of the trucks? Have they called up those trucks? National mobilization. Uh, where are their rail cars? Um, because, again, when you move long strategic distances, you are not going to drive your tanks down the road. You are either going to load them onto low boys and trucks, or you're going to load them onto flat cars and trains. And again, where are those trains? Um, did we see all this coming? And third, with regards to shipping, are there Russian merchant ships in uh, Rotterdam, in uh, Kiel, in Savannah? Um, because, again, in the Cold War days, that was always going to be one of the indicators was that the Warsaw Pact merchant marines were going to get out of NATO ports. Otherwise, they would be interned. Um, and along these lines, are we make, taking steps to intern uh, Russian merchant ships um, as long as we are also doing sanctions on them? Uh, if the answer to that is no, one question there is why not? Because that would seem to be a pretty logical way of pressuring uh, Russia. With regards to China, I would suggest, first off, there is no question the Chinese are watching the developments in Ukraine very closely. Uh, at a purely tactical military level, what works, what doesn't, uh, how are SAM systems working, how are anti-tank systems working, how are Russian active defenses on their tanks working against Javelin. But more broadly, I suspect the Chinese are paying extraordinarily close attention to SWIFT. If it is having the massive impact that the reports suggest on the Russian economy, you can be sure the Chinese are going to factor that into how SWIFT would affect their economy. They're cut off from it. Um, I suspect the Chinese are now going to go over the next five years into overdrive to, to develop the Chinese interbanking uh, payment system, CIPS, uh, in order to create a real alternative to SWIFT. Uh, currently, there's about 1,100 banks on CIPS, about half are Chinese, and another third or so, um, quarter or so, are Russian. So they very much, I think, are going to want to expand that globally. Um, their support for Russia has been um, publicly tepid at best, but they have continued to sign contracts even as the war began, uh, lifting restrictions on imports of Russian wheat. Uh, signing a contract for Russian coal, which, by the way, should also tell us about how much the Chinese care or don't care about climate change. 100 million tons of coal and 38 new coal-fired power plants is, is a lot of coal burning. Um, but it, there are these persistent reports. For example, the uh, Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is Chinese-backed, has apparently suspended providing loans to the Russians. So it is quite possible that Chinese companies, uh, anything that has a real financial bottom line, is looking at this situation and saying, we have a state policy that says don't kick off the Russians, but my bottom line still says backing Russia is the bad move. And this could create what the Chinese term Maldwin contradictions uh, as time goes on. Again, we're only a week into the war. If things resolve themselves over the course of the next week, I'm not sure what lessons the Chinese might learn. But if this continues for two months, three months, four months, there may well be a very interesting friction develop between private companies that say, look, 
Russia's never going to pay us for this stuff. And the state that would prefer to keep things on a better level between Moscow and Beijing. Thank you. I would just like to ask, and this is, this is going to be a bit of fun, if you'd been a fly on the wall in the discussion between Mr. Putin and the president of the PRC, Xi Jinping, what do you think you might have heard that would have been uh, influential in, in this activity and others, perhaps? I don't think that there has been some kind of combined chiefs of staff, uh, uh, Newfoundland, Atlantic Charter type of meeting between Xi and Putin, divvying up the world, coordinating some kind of strategic offensive uh, that the Chinese are going to go after Taiwan in the next few days or weeks. I think what you would have seen in all likelihood would have been a lot of dance, hints at things that were coming, uh, warnings about when to start or not start things. Uh, there is a press report that she specifically asked Putin, if you're going to do anything about Ukraine, don't do it during the Winter Olympics. I have to admit, I personally was surprised that nothing happened during the Winter Olympics. The Russians seem to have made invading countries an Olympic sport. Uh, they invaded Georgia in 2008, uh, literally at the start of the Beijing Olympics, uh, and annexed Crimea during the Sochi Olympics. So I actually was more on guard during the Chinese Winter Olympics. Um, but I do think that more broadly, that there is a consensus between these two leaders that the United States and the West are the greatest constraints upon them, that uh, we, in particular the United States, but the West more broadly, are trying to contain them, are trying to prevent them from reasserting their natural spheres of influence, um, are preventing them from reunifying what they consider their proper subordinate territory. Uh, so I think all of that probably came up in their discussion in addition to the agreements to expand trade and the rest. Um, let me also just note here, um, Moscow may have already won an important victory in the course of this war because of the Belarus referendum. Belarus basically held a referendum in the middle of this war that said, we are no longer going to be a non-nuclear power. And that hasn't necessarily meant that they're probably going to get nuclear weapons, much less aim them at Moscow to deter things. It potentially opens instead the door to Russia deploying nuclear weapons into Belarus and effecting what is for all intents and purposes an anschluss, a reunification between Russia and Belarus, because the referendum also allows Russia to permanently station forces there. In one stroke, you have really exacerbated the border uh, defense problems of Poland. Uh, you've extended it further with regards to Lithuania. You have much more strategically isolated Ukraine. And by potentially introducing nuclear weapons into the situation in Belarus, you make interdiction strikes, etc., aimed at Russian forces there much more fraught with risk because you might hit nuclear as well as conventional forces. Um, I don't know that this would have occurred without the invasion, but it's the invasion of Ukraine has absolutely helped clear the way for this. So no matter what happens, unless Russia loses catastrophically, it would appear that we are going to see a reunified Belarus with Russia at the end of this conflict. Yes, I think that uh, also goes back to your comment in the previous program about uh, Mr. Putin attempting to 
reunite the, the Kiev and Rus, those in Belarus, Ukraine, Russia, and other places. And uh, we'll have to wait and see. I think that uh, we've had a, a great uh, discussion here, and this will be followed by a panel of uh, some good folks as well. I would like to thank you then for joining us tonight and giving us uh, a wide range of things to think about and look forward to an opportunity to speak with you again. And once again, thank you for your work at Heritage and other places. I know you're a great inspiration to me and, 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 a, and a host of other people, and your work matters very much. Thank you for joining us tonight. And thank you for the opportunity. And I look forward to, again, having a chance to have uh, dinner somewhere close to a beach and enjoying a pina colada. Same here. All right. Good night, Dean. Good night. Well, that's great. Let's uh, take some time and enjoy a commercial. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. VDAC, an online application that helps veterans research and file for their VA disabilities. Empowering the veteran to take full control of your claim. Find out more by going to our website, nifv.org, and clicking on the VDAC button. Once again, our website is nifv.org, and click on VDAC. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Art 2.0. This is Ranger Doug. General Granger, over to you, sir. Thank you, Ranger Doug. Uh, so on this part two, I believe it's very timely, obviously, with what's going on internationally. The United States is somewhat on the sidelines to the extent. I mean, our panelists can talk about that. We have great panelists tonight, like we did in, in the first show of program. That was program 716, uh, rather. They're tied together. And I always think about something that goes on like this is, you know, what, what's your ability to do something, whatever it may be. 
whether whether it's uh, uh, just a show of force or, or whether you get involved in combat or you, you provide aid to one side or another. The ability to do that really depends on what else is ready within a whole-of-nation approach. In other words, is your industrial base set up in order to conduct warfare and sustain warfare? Is your uh, Do we rely on some of our enemies' uh, resources in order to build products, the war machine, whatever the case may be? Rare earth elements is a great example. But can you take care of your population both as you deploy your military and the population back home if, if 80% of your actual pharmaceutical ingredient, API, within a, a drug is in the hands of other countries that are a threat to your nation? What if they cut that off? Can you uh, prosecute war if you're going to go ahead and uh, have an issue with fuel? The ability to to fuel not only war, but fuel uh, the nation uh, during this time period. Is your own border secure as you go forward when you go abroad? Uh, and you have to use the whole nation approach, I believe, in order to bring everything together in the right mix so you can do what you want to do to gain positional advantage. And without positional advantage, people die. Aims are not met. Uh, the outcome is uh, not what you want. The second and third effects are disastrous. Bad things can happen. So on tonight's panel, uh, our guests are very familiar with what it takes to influence an outcome, to win, take care of the population, to defend the country uh, as you're doing things around the world and how as a world shrinks because of communications, because the lines of communication on transport, these type of things, the results happen very quickly. So back to you, Ranger Doug, and our guest tonight. Thank you, General. Tonight we're lucky to have with us two panelists that were with us last week. We have the good fortune of having John Fenzel and Mark Mitchell. Mark, would you please introduce yourself? Good evening, uh, Ranger Doug and Joan Grace. It's a pleasure to be here again. Um, I am a retired Army Special Forces officer. Uh, who had the privilege of serving on the National Security Council, was a director for counterterrorism, and then later served as a senior civilian uh, in the Office of Secretary of Defense as an assistant secretary of defense for special operations. Thank you, Mark. And John, would you please introduce yourself? Sure. Well, you know, I, I had the good fortune of uh, spending three decades in our Army's special forces, and I was uh, fortunate to work from the uh, Pentagon's E-Ring to the White House's West Wing. Um, I've written three novels that uh, illustrate both international and domestic crises and, and how they're handled behind the scenes. And, and uh, after stepping out of uniform, I uh, headed up a foundation that helps veteran families who are in, in special need and uh, is a big fan of the Veterans Radio Hour. It's just an honor and a, and a privilege to be here. So Thank you both very much, General and, and Ranger Doug. Thank you, John. And I'm Ranger Doug, and uh, as John Fenzel said last week, he had the good fortune to work for Mark Mitchell. I have had the good fortune to work for John Fenzel and General Grange. Over to you, General. <laughs> thank you, Ranger Doug. And John and Mark, thank you so much, not only for being on the show tonight, but your service in the U.S. government, armed forces, and other positions John, your writing on your books and, and just the out outcome of many of the things that you've done, the valor of Mark on the show uh, from his combat experience, it's a, it's a privilege. Right now, so what I'm going to do is, is, is moderate comments, uh, questions and comments from 
three panelists, and Ranger Doug is one of the panelists. And we're going to pick up on uh, what happened in Ukraine, where we where we are, where we think we're going to go, uh, where uh, Putin's going to go, what effects that has on, on some other international players. So I'm going to start with with um, with John in uh, John Penzel and, and ask John uh, on the status of the war right now. Uh, you know, we got kind of a report. You hear it on the different shows, whether you watch Fox or CNN or whatever. And I personally believe, just like in intelligence, getting combat intelligence, you got to get different uh, sources before you can get the, the most accurate picture. And there's a lot of noise out there. Some I believe is accurate. Some I believe is inaccurate. Uh, the fog of war, whatever the case may be, or just the sensationalism of reporting. But... I'd like, John, your view of the status of war right now. And I think it's, I can't remember, was it day eight? I'm not sure. But where are we right now on uh, the advance? And we'll talk about war aims and that in a little bit. But the advance of, of the Russian forces uh, in Ukraine, what's the status that you believe right now? What are the conditions? What is what is What can people most likely believe? General, I'll tell you, I totally agree. You know, it, it, this is a, there is a fog of war, and it's always a challenge to say exactly what's happening on the ground when we're 6,000-plus miles away, right? So, you know, as you look at this, you know, like you said, you, you look at, at a lot of different sources, and you just try, kind of try to figure out what is the ground truth. And no matter what you think it is, it's always going to be a bit different. But, you know, from what I've seen, I really think that there are some general themes that, um, and, 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 and kind of a direction that we can, we can look at that'll provide us at least some accurate information. You know, um, the, I think right now, you know, in, in the, the Russian advance towards Kiev is stalled and, and, and that's where really the most intense fighting has been happening just northwest of, of Kiev. Um, and, and that advance, in a lot of cases, has mainly involved troops that are advancing up the, the major roads, and 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 they're they're failing to capture, or they're they're actually bypassing a lot of these major population centers. So it's it's really unlikely, I think, that uh, Russia is maintaining any real control over uh, you know a lot of these areas that they're said to control, because in a lot of cases. The, you know, Ukraine, Ukrainian forces have been fully involved at, at, at various points. You know, one of, especially along the, their exposed supply routes and forces, we've already seen that with that 40 mile convoy that was st stalled just north of Kiev. My question was, when are they going to hit it? Because the best time to hit a convoy is when it's still a convoy. <laughs> so they finally did. And, and, uh, and I think that they used a, a lot of different means to, to, uh, include these Turkish uh, UAVs um, uh, that they've received, and we, we can talk a little bit about that as well. And, and but what what I know that they have achieved, Russia has achieved, is they've captured their first major city, that southern port of of Kherson. And the fall of Kherson is important because it could it could clear the way for the Russian forces to seize that entire Black Sea coast and ultimately cut off Ukraine. From the world shipping and, and, and resupply capabilities, so you know Russia um, has, has also surrounded this key port city of Mariupol. And if, and if that city falls, you're going to end up with a situation where Russia and Russian-backed fighters are positioned to trap 
Ukrainian forces defending in, in the southeast. So, you know, the, the one thing I will say, though, is that I think we really have to be careful, um, as, as you mentioned, General, you know, about the sensationalism and be careful of any of the emotional rhetoric because the, uh, the Ukrainians face a huge uphill battle as we go along. And, you know, and we could talk a little bit more about this. I mean, we've got, we've, in addition to everything else that's happening on the ground, you've got a significant refugee and humanitarian crisis that's begun. And, um, and you know, and what's really encouraging for me to see is just the massive Ukrainian volunteers that have uh, that have come into the fray to help those um, who are in those, those civilian areas that are being attacked. So um, the one other thing that I'll say that was really pretty interesting is to see the European Union that's now face that's now um, financing the purchase and the delivery of weapons for Ukraine. That's a significant shift from leaving everything up just to the member nations. I mean, this is something that that uh, is really pretty unprecedented. And on Sunday, I was watching the German Chancellor um, uh, actually talk about this as well. And uh, and so I think we're seeing a major kind of um, uh, ground shift in, in the way things are being handled, especially in Europe. Over. Yeah, John, you, great comments, and you know it's a it's a, it's a very uh, kind of a lumpy you know question. I mean, it's just what's the status of the war? I mean, but I just wanted to get your view to kind of set the stage for additional comments and questions that we're going to have, uh, because really it, everybody initially thought. And, and correct me if, if you disagree, is that, that this would be a faster move for the Russian forces, a, a blitzkrieg more or less. Uh, and they didn't expect to run out, run, run forward of their, their trains. In other words, they didn't have the combat service support that they needed, whether it be fuel, whether it be ammunition, whether it be care of wounded, whatever the case may be. Uh, I, you know, and another thing I'd like to throw out there for you to comment on is that, uh, and I heard this from not only on television, but I heard this from other sources. We're, we're working on a, a little bit of humanitarian stuff uh, uh, back here. And so, you know, we're trying to keep, keep in, in tune with what's going on on the ground, obviously. But, uh, for instance, I understand that the from several sources that the, the soldier, the Russian soldier, Putin's warriors really were not briefed on on the purpose of what they were trying to do. That, that is a series of different reports of what really they knew what was going on. And the other the other piece is uh, many of us worked with Russians before. Ranger Doug and I worked with Russian parachutes. We had 35 under our command. And we know the Russian Ukrainian army, obviously. And I remember training with that armored force when you know as in, in particular when the wall came down so i mean they're not they're not uh it's not a third world country armor unit i mean they they have the, the same russian tt tactics techniques and procedures and 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 equipment so i i just i, I have a hard time with the, the status of the war where the russians seem to be bogged down except for a few uh victories here and there and and uh and they've lost a lot of resources to include human life, and nowhere near where they thought they were going to be. So the status of war, I guess, John, I'm just throwing a few things out here, but are they stalled? Are they grasping for a, 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 a new 
uh, strategic direction on what to do with this? Uh, w- was it originally a ruse by by Putin, and then he decided, hell, I'm going to do this because I think the United States is weak and NATO is weak? Uh, comments on some of those things I just threw out. You know, General, I, I really think that, um, you know, a, a couple of things that you just mentioned. I, I also heard about um, the uh, the reports that the Russian uh, conscripts had not been told about this. They were told that this was just an exercise, a training exercise, and then um, and then suddenly they're going into Ukraine and suffering massive casualties. I, I I've heard you know that the Russians themselves said that their casualties have been um, have numbered in 900. Um, but if you listen to Zelensky, he's saying it's more like 9,000. So there's there's quite a gap there. Um, just here in the first week of, of this of this war. Um, and you know the other thing I would say is that you know I don't I don't think that they were fully ready for this. I mean they you haven't seen Russia in a full combat situation really. I mean I, I guess you can count Syria, but even that doesn't really count. As far as a full combined arms operation, I think this is the first time in a long time, probably since Afghanistan. So these guys are new at it. And, um, and 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 yet they are making some gains. I mean, we we saw the gains that they're making, the biggest gains in in southern Ukraine. You know, capturing the city is a victory, but holding on to it and governing it are are completely different things, as we all know. And so, um, the population in Ukraine, depending on where you're at in the country, is going to potentially resist you at every turn. And even Zelensky acknowledged that the Russian forces had, had taken control in some cities, but. He said, ultimately, they're going to be driven out. I think his, his uh, exact comment was, I'm sure of this. If they entered somewhere, it's only temporary because we're going to drive them out with shame. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's yeah. uh, there, there's, you know, it really depends on who you listen to, and I think the truth is somewhere in between. Yeah, no, good, good comments. I want to go back a little bit of, of, of that re- reference, the, the fighting of the, of the civilian population. Uh, as we get through the show, I have one more question. Uh, for you, if you don't mind, and then we can uh, and then we can move on. The last question, John: Do you think that he had a limited? Did Putin have a limited objective to go in, get rid of the president, threaten or occupy capital, and then get certain things negotiated and move out? You know, it, it's a good question. I, I have a hard time um, really kind of getting into Vladimir Putin's head, General. You know, um, I, I think you know the first thing to understand about about Vladimir Putin, we could talk a little bit more at length about this, is that he's absolutely an imperialist. And uh, and so, you know, one of the things that I, I think his biggest goal, is, if you want to talk about actual strategy, was to um, to actually go in and, and decapitate the leadership, the senior leadership of Ukraine. And I, I, and I think that that's something that they train for. They have actual units for um, this in Spetsnaz. They have a whole division called the Alpha Unit, um, and uh, they were used in Syria. They had they had they performed very very well there, so they know what they're doing. Um, they had another unit that came in from Africa that was destroyed, um, but on the ground right now in Kiev, you have this Alpha Unit over there, and these guys are handpicked. They're the ones who go in, they, they penetrate the heart of, of the enemy's territory, they assimilate into the into the civilian populations in order to assassinate those senior leaders and eliminate strategic infrastructure. That's what they do. And I think that that's really their, their, their overall methodology. And so 
Um, that's happening kind of in concert and in parallel with this main effort um, that's kind of circumventing uh, the whole country of Ukraine um, as they kind of struggle to advance forward. So um, I think overall that's that's kind of, if, if I were to, to guess, that's probably their methodology based on everything else I've seen them do in the past. Yeah, it's a great point. And I want to transition what you just said uh, to Mark, and I want to ask Mark this question. With his special operations background, why would a guy not like Putin not, you know, here's a guy that KGB understands special operations to some extent. Why would he not have, with the power grids taken out, with the communication centers taken out, with the airfields immediately secured, was the, was the command and control decapitated? Did they do something with the power grid? Why were those things not done? On this, on this attack, this invasion into Ukraine, or did they just screw it up? Mark, over to you. Well, thanks, General Grange. I think it's a great question, and I would, I would go back to something that John mentioned earlier, and that you, you touched on, is that expeditionary operations, even when they're on your own border, are extremely complex. And the Russian armed forces simply don't have the kind of experience in those expeditionary operations, certainly that we in the United States Department of Defense have gained. And, you know, you look at something, whether it's Desert Shield, Desert Storm, or the 2003 invasion of Iraq, and from a distance, it looks very kind of straightforward. But up close and personal, synchronizing and integrating all those different um, types of effects uh, is a real challenge. And I just, uh, I think while, while the Russians possess capabilities to do all those types of things, they do not have the, uh, the training and the uh, repetitions necessary to integrate them in a uh, in a highly effective manner. And I think we've seen that, and they've just, you know, they weren't able to pull it all together because it takes, um, you know, you mentioned command and control, but it also takes tremendous uh, command and control on the side of the Russian armed forces and integration of all those different efforts. And I, from what I've seen, they, they possess them uh, separately, but not, you know, they can't bring them together uh, in time and space on the battlefield to produce the necessary effects. And so what we've seen is kind of a uh, a mishmash of these, you know, where you're putting in uh, some great kinetic power, but it's not complemented by the other types of uh, capabilities. And particularly on the information side, I think the uh, the Russians are 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 not faring well. And, and you know, go back. I just want to go back to the one of the original comments is that everything has to be taken with a grain of salt. You know, there's lots of reporting. It's hard to sort out the truth from the propaganda, and even videos and photographs that seem to show something really clearly uh, need to be carefully analyzed and before we can draw. Um, you know really strong conclusions for it. But I do think it's fair to say 
that the the Russians have bogged down and they haven't been able to bring all this stuff together. Over. So I want to take, Mark, I want to take what you just said and, and part of what John said and ask you another question. You both made comments on the ability for force projection, invasion, whatever the case may be. And if you look back in history and look at who actually did expeditionary warfare on a large scale, now you can, I guess you can argue what large scale is. But if you look at the United States moving from World War II on across the Pacific, across the Atlantic, to, to landmass, to conduct warfare, when was the last time the Russians actually uh, projected their forces outward to wow. conduct warfare against the modern army? I think that's a that's a, a fabulous question, and the simple answer is I can't recall any um, where you know again where they've done something like you know we in the United States have been forced to transport their their tanks, their artillery, their logistical support overseas and, and 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 operate on that kind of you know expeditionary basis i don't think they've ever done it and uh at least not in not in my lifetime and i i you know they, of course they sent you know they in the in the 70s they sent a lot of advisors uh around the world but th- you know that was much different than actually conducting expeditionary combat operations and and again, even in even in Syria, they did not you know deploy large combat formations, and those that they did deploy um, did not fare very well when they came up directly against the United States. And so, I I just I don't I'm not aware of any any point in in Russia's history either as the Soviet Union, you know, post World War II. Um, or after you know the uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, conducting any kind of operations like expeditionary operations like that. Over. Yeah, Mark. What this hints to to me is that not only the equipment and the weapons and equipment of the United States or any country the same, but the ability to train properly in combined arms. John uh, mentioned this: combined arms, joint operations. The ability to do that by the Russians, by many countries. I even look back at the Egyptians and the Israelis, which had some fairly good demonstrated combined arms uh, feats during during uh, that, their conflict. But I don't I don't see too many countries that really have their force projection capabilities. You got to go back to the Japanese in World War Two. You got it. It just or the North Koreans going into South Korea. You just don't have that experience, uh, and definitely these other countries don't have the training that the United States military has. And the reason I'm I'm bringing that up is because I'm going to pass this over to Ranger Doug and talk about the combined arms capability, the no kidding capability. We know what we have. What the Russians probably have. I mean, John Fenzel brought up the thing about combined arms. I think that's an issue in this current conflict. And, and Ranger Doug, I like your your comments on this. Well, it's surprising that the uh, 
Russians themselves, uh, when they became the Soviets, were in the lead of developing expeditionary-type warfare under Marshal Tukhachevsky. And in the purges that occurred before World War II, he and many others were killed. But he was actually a man who was a colleague of Liddell Hart and Patton and others who were busy developing uh, the fusion of the aircraft, artillery, maneuver infantry, and, and armor. And oddly enough, the proponent of their best expeditionary operation gave us Pearl Harbor. That was uh, Georgi Zukov, who was based in Manchuria defending the southern frontier against the Japanese in 1939. And uh, having lost to the Japanese in 1905 in the Russo-Japanese War, Georgi Zukov, guarding against the Japanese who were making a, a foray into Manchuria and Mongolia, and at the Battle of Namenhan, also known as Kalkin Gaul, he deceived the Japanese completely, maneuvering armored forces and trucks and such over a great distance, way outside the normal sphere of Soviet operations, and defeated a larger Japanese army in detail. And the Japanese had their nose so bloodied that they decided that the resources they needed, instead of finding them to the north, would be found in the Pacific. And that led to Yamamoto actually making the plans that led to Pearl Harbor and our war in the Pacific. Then Zhukov was pulled to the defense of Stalingrad and became the, the marshal of the Soviet Union that we know so well now. And he served and, and lived a, a full life, but was at one point uh, an enemy of Stalin. So they have the tradition, but the, the tradition has been sundered because when the transition occurred from the Soviet Union to the current, the current government under Putin, which is not the Soviet government, it doesn't have the controls the Soviet government had, uh, they've tried to ape us in the idea that they can do the things that we do and they have the tools and they have great aircraft and great tanks, but they have no method of, of controlling their conscription soldiers. And so while they have a lot of these moves down, uh, it takes the entrepreneurial spirit, the devotion, and the uh, esprit of the American soldier, sailor, airman, marine, coast guardsman to take the concepts that we've developed and to uh, actually make them work. And also, they've done away with a lot of the Soviet-style population resource control measures so that as they move forward, they have no ability to consolidate their gains. Finally, I would say that since Vladimir Putin has never been a soldier, uh, there are things he probably expected of his general staff that they may have either told him they could do or they actually uh, perhaps even avoided answering some of the things that he asked for. And this is now blown up into a simple operation that was launched at the wrong time based on the weather and they'll be able to seize a number of things and menace a number of places in Ukraine and even go after NATO and others to keep out. And ultimately, they'll be forced to draw back to the strip that they really want, which exists between Luhansk and Donetsk and Crimea. I know they're attacking from about four different points, but uh, it's created problems. The Ukrainians report the Russians have lost 7,000 dead. The Russians are reporting 498. Somewhere between those two, the truth lies. They lost about 14,500 in Afghanistan uh, total in about nine years and some months. Uh, these are things that are going to affect them. And at the time, being the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, they had much more ability to absorb that number of casualties than they do today. So some things that are probably going to happen here that will be very surprising to people. Back to you, General. Thank you, Ranger Doug. And what really amazes me is that, you know, we've all worked with Russian forces before. And they, they got some tough guys. But I just, I, I really question, I'm going to make two comments. I really question 
the combined arms capability of, of the Russian army. When we were in Lviv and Ukraine doing a training exercise with the 3ID and a Ukrainian division, uh, they were talking about all the training they did, this and that. When I looked at their motor pool and I looked at their tank park and that, there was there was the, the tanks that were parked on cement. They had painted the tanks. And you could tell the tank, the tank never moved from the concrete where they were painted because of where the paint actually hit the ground when they were trying to paint the, the tracks and the wheels and everything else. They really only, in a whole division, used one platoon. They had the one ID, a big red one. I had about 220 tanks or something. They only had one platoon of tanks that actually trained. It really amazed me. And then... I have, and I have in my possession a Russian map. And on that map, it would belong to a lieutenant. And on that map, he drew his arrows and his, uh, eggs that were the, uh, objectives and fire, overwatch fire positions, all the different military symbols with ink on his paper map. And I asked them during an exercise that we were evaluating, I asked them, is that, is that the way you're going to go with the information, the intel you got on the battlefield? And he goes, that's the way my captain, my battalion commander, my, all my, all the way up to Jones said for me to do, and that's what I will do. Zero flexibility. No NCOs in his platoon. A senior private and lieutenant and a map drawn with ink. Now, what does that tell you for combined arms or the ability to use leadership when the terrain varies from the map? you got to go with the terrain, those type of things. And so I think that still plagues the Russian army. That's my opinion. I think it still does. And I think we'll see when after-action reviews are done and everything that this fight in Ukraine, they have the same problem. And again, that's just that's just, that's just my opinion. Now let's move on from status of war. Let's move on to war aim. What is what is Putin trying to get out of this? What's his strategy? And I'd like to start this time with, with uh, Mark first. And what do you, what do you think? Just your gut feeling and what you heard and read. Putin's up to. What is his war aim? What's his strategy? So I, I think it, it is largely the same. His war aims are the same. He wants to decapitate the, the current regime, uh, you know, that, uh, in Kyiv and install a, a more compliant puppet government or at the very least send a message to any future Ukraine government that any, um, any amount of uh, cozying up to the West is going to come at a price. I think he wants to sustain, as John mentioned, the gains uh, on on the coast of the Black Sea, probably all the way down, um, I think, to Odessa, and cut Ukraine off and, and secure that that entire eastern border of of Russia from Belarus. Um, frankly, all the way down to Moldova and, and prevent any kind of encroachment, uh, on Russia's borders there. 
And then thirdly, uh, I think he wants to come out of this uh, still in power. And uh, that's, you know, and uh, in control in Russia. I think while it's unlikely that he's going to lose control, he has certainly cost himself a lot of support. And uh, as I went, as I was thinking about this earlier, uh, Vladimir Putin has managed to do uh, what multiple U.S. presidents, secretaries of defense, and secretaries of state have been unable to do over the last decades, and that's to unite and energize NATO and the EU, uh, especially Germany, um, to live up to their commitments to the uh, to to the alliance. And so, um, if if his if his intent was to weaken NATO, I, I certainly think that's backfired. Over. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. I think it has backfired. I haven't seen them figure in in years as recently. Uh, anyway, and all of us on the on this particular program uh, have worked worked with NATO under NATO, uh, different types of operations in different regions of the world, but. John, your your opinion on Russian or Putin, I guess I should say Putin because it's really up to Putin. His his aims. Yeah. I mean, is he is he did, did he did he did he change his strategy after day? You know, there was a pause for about forty eight hours. Did he change his strategy? Do you think? What, what's he up to? You know, it's, it's really interesting because um, you know, and once again, hard to get in this guy's head, but. You know, I think to really, you know, in that attempt to get into Vladimir Putin's head, you really have to kind of understand what's led up to this. And you know, first and foremost, I think it's it's important to to think to to realize that Putin blames the the early Soviet authorities for handing over what he views um, in a in a kind of a visceral way the ancestral Russian lands to Ukraine and then all to all the other Soviet republics, but. First and foremost, he sees Ukraine as as belonging to Russia. He has this burning resentment over the end of the Soviet Empire. We've heard him say that. Um, he also uh, really uh, regrets um, the the Russia's reduced role in, in world affairs. And uh, you know, late last year, we even heard him uh, refer to the fall of the Soviet Union as the d- demise of historical Russia. And um, he also called it the, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. So hyper, hyperbole aside, he's, he's, he's upset, and he's trying to write that, you know, through his own perceptions. Um, but even more recently, though, you know, I think he's also um, really enraged over the Ukraine's efforts to embrace democracy, as Mark was saying, and pursue this path towards not only EU membership, but also NATO membership. And so you had this 2004 Orange Revolution. That was a key turning point for him, and he bungled that in a, in a major way. Um, quite frankly, he was pretty humiliated, and, um, and that left, left, him, um, left him bitter towards the West and really kind of hardened his positions. And it really kind of helped fuel his fixation on Ukraine. And, and, and that was really the catalyst for this invasion, I believe. And so, and it's become an obsession for him, and it's led to where we are today. Now, more specifically, um, kind of in this, this declaration of war speech that he just gave last week, um, he called this 
a special operation. Now, you can interpret that different ways. You know, is this going to be a wider war that he, where he targets, you know, the Baltics and the Balkans and, and, and other um, nations that are bordering Russia? I don't know. Um, but, you know, if you listen to his rhetoric, they, they, they are a tell. Um, and it's a tell that, you know, you really can't get any other way. But I, I do agree with, with Mark. I, I think that, you know, first and foremost, you know, um, you know, we've had the decapitation of the Ukrainian political leadership. That's been one goal. Um, you know, he's, he's definitely trying to consolidate his gains in the South, as Mark mentioned. Um, he, he has to defeat the Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, he absolutely has to do that. Um, and, and then finally, he's going to have to destroy Ukraine as a functioning independent state, because if he doesn't do that, then he's going to continue to have this resistance throughout the throughout um, that, that whole battle space. I really agree with you on this. I, I really, I think back to, though it was a peace support operation, but it, it gets in the Russian psyche. So I'm thinking about Kosovo, and I'm thinking about Pristina Airfield. And when the Russians came down, uh, Ugovic and Bosnia Herzegovina came down and they occupied Pristina and then they had they gave the Brits a hard time, uh others a hard time and, and General Clark was going crazy and all these different things were happening. And I, I remember going in there and talking to the uh, Russian generals and they were very nervous about it and we just we just kinda of came in with one helicopter, very benign in a way. And and I knew the guys because of, of Bosnia. But anyway, what really hit them hard to convince them to cooperate with us was a just simple statement that to the Russian counterpart, there's only two world leaders, and that's the United States and Russia. And you really have to set the example for these other countries that were working on this peace support operation because you're a leader. You're a world power. There's only two of us, you and, and us. So you got to cooperate with us in order to set the example. And by just recognizing that they were world leader after what you said, John, about Putin, you know, they're really kind of pissed off about how they lost credibility and, and status and pizzazz with the rest of the international community was a big deal. We're going to talk about the international community a little bit later, but I, I think you're right on. The other thing is, I want to, because uh, of the the personality of an individual, go back to Ranger Doug now, and on and operationally, not not on the war aims or the strategy, but operationally, is Putin trying to direct the war like Hitler would with his generals, or is he kind of hands off like, let's say, Marshall and Eisenhower? Uh, doing uh, doing the, the war in World War Two in that regard, or is he really involved trying to wreck the command and control of this fight, Ranger Doug? Uh, General, you mentioned when you were in Lviv in L L Ukraine with your Third uh, Infantry Division cohort uh, that you met uh, soldiers there, leaders there that said that I do this because this is what my commander has agreed and I must follow the plan. That still exists within the Russian army. And what I described about Zhukov earlier was completely different. It was a mission command directed army. They were very good at it. But unfortunately, after the purges occurred and once the Germans had attacked 
they had gotten rid of so many good officers, they were back to waiting until they could suffer enough to where they could weed out the bad officers, find the good officers, and then they made these crazy gains. But they'd massed their forces, and the whole populace was up because the Germans had treated them so hard. They had no ability to resist the Germans in the beginning. Well, that's left them now at a point where they have a lot of the good tools, great aircraft, great tanks, great artillery, but the same mindset that causes them to have to look for approval from above and always stick with the plan. Whereas your adage, which you got from Colonel Beckwith, that uh, when the map varies from the terrain, you go with the terrain, talks about the way the American soldier, sailor, airman, marine, coast guardsman, at every level has to go with their initiative when, when all else breaks down. And as long as they understand the war aim and the operations, the tactics, and the orders are firmly fixed in their minds, they can be entrepreneurs of violence and do many other things as well and do it very well. And it's a strength that we have that other countries really don't have. And so in this case, I think that there is a great fear of Putin among his senior officers because although it isn't the Soviet Union, the purges still occur, and you can still go to a gulag, they maintain, several in fact, and you can suddenly be apprehended in the night and uh, disappear. Meanwhile, anyone outside the country is attacked with Novichok, a new uh, nerve agent that's, that's banned in international community uh, parlance, and also... Uh, he uh, was uh, after several with polonium, which is a terrible radioactive poison. So he's already actually evidenced the idea that he would use uh, weapons of mass destruction, and that allows them to say the thing they said, where they would deploy this low-yield, meaning low-radiation, low-fallout uh, weapon, but a tactical nuclear weapon that would create great destruction. These are threats, but I don't believe that he's necessarily got the general staff completely on board. And then Unlike our forces, where we have a unity of command from top to bottom, generally everyone following the same idea, and when things break down, they, they remember what they were told, and they still continue following the terrain. That doesn't happen here. There may be the possibility that Putin, as we understand, could be making great demands on his commanders, and they are not capable of following him, or they don't want to follow him, or soldiers at the front are busy damaging their equipment, and also uh, going through something like malingering. But these are all reports we're getting from a multitude of sources, none of which we can really trust. I think a little more time will have to go on before we can tell. There are several reports, like the one from Bill Roggio, that say that he's playing some kind of game and has some masterstroke hidden behind the apparent chaos. But I still fall back to the fact that he launched the operation at a bad time in the weather cycle. And while the snow melts, it becomes mud, and then it becomes difficult to move anywhere but on the roads. And as we all know, given all the terrain in, in Ukraine and, and the variety of rivers and marshes and everything else that the devil the Germans in the summer, uh, it's easily possible for partisans and others to stop columns of logistics along the roads with simple ambushes, mines, and mortars, other things, even direct fire snipers could stop a column. And if the logistics can't get to the front, it's immaterial whether he's got good tanks. So it's kind of like back to what Eisenhower said in World War II. Uh, amateurs study tactics, professionals study logistics, and I think the logistics is going to be their undoing. They'll simply not be able to achieve their own war aims, and they'll adjust back to take something less than they appear to want at this time. Let's take a moment for a commercial break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. 
on VBN Veterans Broadcast Network. We'll be right back. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life, like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. VDAC, an online application that helps veterans research and file for their VA disabilities. Empowering the veteran to take full control of your claim. Find out more by going to our website, nife.org, and clicking on the VDAC button. Once again, our website is nife.org, and click on VDAC. back and here's your co-host ranger doug over to you general we're going to transfer to this whole nation again whole government idea and the reason i say that is because right now in this war i believe that Putin is having a lot of internal issues with his own population. You see it on TV, but I, I can see why because of the story that they're trying to tell to the citizenry of Russia. And it reminds me going back to why this is so important being a, you know, a, a veteran of also the Vietnam War as a grunt, as an infantryman. Uh, and not understanding one the purpose too well at the time. Uh, it could have been a chain of command failure. But also, um, you know, the population back home. So the difference in Desert Storm, the difference in when we went into uh, Afghanistan and then Iraq, and then, under, granted, 9-11 motivated a lot of the reason for this. But that was in our face. Vietnam wasn't in our face as an example. And I'm almost, I, you know, I, this whole nation, if, if you're going to go ahead and conduct warfare, one, you got to make sure that at home, like we said in the opening remarks, is secure. It's like your rear area being secure in a military operation. you got to make sure your borders are secure, your, the population is secure. 
And you got to make sure that you can fuel, feed, manufacture for war. And you have those lines of communication to where you're projecting to land, air, or sea. And the, the whole nation right now, I mean, I, I, I see three major vulnerabilities for us. What's going on in Ukraine, not because of Ukraine as much as the second and third order effects with Taiwan, with Korea, with Iran, whatever the case may be, we have no rare earth elements manufacturing. Eighty percent of our pharmaceuticals, the critical ingredient in the pharmaceuticals, are manufactured overseas. Uh, our fuel is in jeopardy. And then our southern border is in jeopardy. And so looking at whole nation, whole government, let's look at Ukraine, whole nation. Let's look at Russia, whole nation, and the current conflict. And I'll start, if you don't mind, with Mark on this. Go ahead, Mark. Thanks, Colonel Grange. I think it's fair to say, despite some of the very obvious divisions within the United States body politic that we are certainly faring much better in terms of whole nation than Russia and Putin. I think, again, watching the State of the Union the other night, the president's remarks with respect to the situation in Ukraine and our response seem to enjoy great support. Now, there's there's obviously going to be some differences of opinion at the lower you go in terms of what type of aid and support that we're going to provide to Ukraine. But I do think there is a unanimity in that we need to support Ukraine somehow. And one of the things I want to, I want to bring up that I think was extraordinary uh, was the, the decision to transfer stair missiles to the Ukrainians. And one of my uh, duties when I was at the White House was the, the synchronizing element for the MANPADS task force, the Man Portable Air Defense Systems Task Force. And the United States and a lot of other countries, including the Russian Federation, signed the Wassenaar Agreement in 1996 to limit the proliferation of some of these technologies, including the Man Portable Air Defense Systems. And this is really the first time since the Soviet invasion of uh, Afghanistan that the United States has exported these in this fashion. And granted, you know, the, in Afghanistan, they were going to a non-state entity, you know, the Mujahideen. Now they're, they're going to the Ukrainians, but it still um, could be a very significant impact on the fight there. And what, you know, what remains to be seen is how, how the Russians and Vladimir Putin will respond if Russian aircraft begin to be shot down by U.S. provided stinger missiles and, uh, you know, German provided anti-tank missiles. Um, and I think on the, on the Russian side, I would just say a couple things quickly. It seems that the effects of sanctions are compounding rather quickly. You know, the Russian stock market is shut down. They're already experiencing a loss of imports to include components for uh, much of their domestic manufacturing, the air traffic restrictions, the seizures, the collapse of the ruble. And in many cases, you know, now they're having a, a difficult time 
selling their natural resources. And I think all that bodes very poorly for uh, Putin in the long run in terms of his domestic whole of nation effort. And so we've already seen it struggling. I'm not saying it's going to it's going to fatally undermine it, but it's certainly going to make it much more difficult for him to rally the uh, the Russian people to his cause. Over. Yeah, I, I think I think Mark, you're right. I mean, I think he, there's a lack of support boiling uh, from the Russian population on this particular endeavor by Putin. I, I really do, John. Uh, just simply, what your comments on the same question? Mark's whole nation on the Ukraine's, what do they have that gives them unit power going forward? You know, it's a great question. What, what does, what does, what are the advantages that Ukraine has? First of all, they, they have, you know, a very patriotic base from which to draw from, and we've seen that in spades, um, in a, in a pretty dramatic way. And, um, and, and the other thing that they've really excelled at is telling their story. Uh, you have to be able to do that, and 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 through that, through social media, through um, through the just the internet and, and news and you know conventional media, they have told their story um, probably better than than most any I've ever seen in, in telling their plight. To the extent that you know what you've seen now is uh, is a pretty you know. All things told, a pretty unified effort on not only the part of the United States, but also the part of the EU and NATO as well. Um, you know, they, they're, they're receiving supplies. Now, what worries me is if, if the South is, is cut off, how are they going to receive those supplies, you know, in bulk? Um, but, uh, when they, when they're receiving these Stinger missiles and, and, um, and, you know, when they're able to, to, to really kind of target these transport planes and helicopters that are targeting them, you know, at that point, that's when we're going to really see them making a significant, some significant headway. But, you know, when you talk about whole government, obviously, um, part and parcel of that is, is a, is kind of gaining the synchronized effort. And, you know, on the, here at home, I think we've seen, you know, we've done a pretty fair job of, of responding to this. Um, you can always do more. We've seen just uh, here in the last couple of days thousands of our own troops from the 3rd Infantry Division that are deploying from, uh, I think, Fort Stewart to, to Germany, 7,000 in all is the number that I've heard. The question I have, is that sufficient, or especially when you're facing 175,000 Russian troops across the border, and um, or, or does it only qualify as a, as a tripwire? Um, there's there's a lot of other things too. We're seeing um, you know some other kind of whole government actions that we're taking here at home. Um, the Air Force, uh, their, the Global Strike Command, had planned just today, this morning, early this morning, to uh, conduct an unarmed Minuteman three launch from Vandenberg uh, Space Force Base there in California, um, and it was it was supposed to be unmanned, you know, unarmed. Uh, but they decided to postpone that test launch to avoid any kind of further nuclear escalation with Russia. So, you know, that was a real decision-making process um, to arrive at that decision, and, and they did. And so I, the, the other thing I see, and General Grange, you had mentioned um, Taiwan and the security of Taiwan as China kind of increases their saber rattling. Well, we just saw um, Admiral Mike Mullen, the former um, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, lead a delegation over there to reemphasize our commitment um, in supporting the security of Taiwan. And so, 
there, there, you have all. I'll tell you another another thing that I just saw, which I was really encouraged by, was Turkey's actions, uh, which was a real surprise to me. I mean, they've they've airlifted these additional uh, drones that I just mentioned to Ukraine. They had six before the invasion, and now they have more. I'm not sure how much more. Um, they've they've also uh, told all nations that. Uh, no warships are going to be passing through the Bosphorus or Dardanelles Straits, and so they block passage to the to the Black Sea. That's significant as well. So I think that you know slowly but surely um, we're we're seeing some pretty effective measures taken. We talked last week about the the swift payment system. At that point, you know, um, it, it was a possibility, but that's been implemented at least in, in in part. Now there's lots of different workarounds that can be applied to this. And I think that one of the big concerns uh, in blocking off the, the Russian financial system is is to cover the cryptocurrencies as well. So there's a lot of different things I think that that have happened, and um, and I think that we're going to see you know this whole process and in, 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 in our alliance structure become even stronger as a result of Russia's actions, and um, and and so so far I've been pretty encouraged by it. Yeah, John, great comments. And you actually, we're going to transition from your comments to another question that came from our audience. Uh, I just wanted to comment, though. It's, I was surprised as well with Turkey because Turkey kind of, in my, at least my view, was starting to let down NATO. Yeah. We're not participating when asked a lot of things. And, and what they've just recently done is surprising, but uh, kudos to them that they did it. A great point. Um, what, what I'm going to transition to is the effect, and you started it already, the effect on the international community, on NATO itself. So I'm going to go over to, to Ranger Doug. And, and NATO, um, you know, past presidents have criticized uh, NATO quite a bit, and, and I think rightfully so in many regards. But, you know, it kind of cha- changed its shape a little bit, this and that. Many of us who have worked for NATO uh, Ranger Doug, your 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 comments uh, on a question that came out of, the, of our listeners about the effect on the international community of this current conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Over to you, Doug. Yes, sir. I've served at NATO as a strategist, and the problem we have with NATO is this is not a NATO country. It's a partner in a sense. It was a partner of ours in the Partnership for Peace back in uh, the 90s. But NATO itself has little it can do to support this directly, except that Russia and Belarus do abut NATO countries, and they are making efforts to stir up the same kind of trouble there. So there isn't much that NATO does or can do in direct support. And several NATO nations have described or have been depicted as being reluctant to support because they sit close to Russia, and they're concerned that even tacit support will be seen as overt support and Russia will somehow attack them with cyber, financial, and uh, possibly uh, kinetic attack. Um, The EU is similarly uh, looking at this from a number of perspectives, but it's very strange that the vertical and horizontal integration in the world has allowed for these financial instruments to really take a a big bite out of uh, the Russian ability to uh, persist. Uh, Presently, the Russian oligarchs that were so famous, the wealthy men, are, are sidelined now by uh, those that are called the Siloviki. Those are people who run their security companies like Wagner and other uh, combat-related aspects that allow 
Mr. Putin to extend his sphere of influence and terror beyond what he can do with his regular military forces. Those are really the people that are influenced. But the oligarchs are having their assets frozen and consolidated, and they're moving ahead to step back from support. But there doesn't appear to be something concerning an overall effort to remove Mr. Putin at this time, but it, it could lie somewhere in the future. Right now, we're seeing a very interesting thing that seems to involve most of the world. I know that isn't whole of nation. Most of the world is against this, and they're doing whatever they can to hamstring the Russians at this point. One exception to that is China, and we can obviously see that the, the meeting between Xi Jinping and Mr. Putin probably produced the conditions for this activity, and then a sequel activity that may occur in the Pacific. We noticed today that Taiwan is being menaced by cyber attacks, power outages, and other things that, that are designed to soften them up for action that may be coming. But in the same light, Xi has reversed himself on a number of things that seem to say that he's really not for this invasion at this point. And so it, it's, it's in doubt whether Mr. Putin will continue to uh, enjoy the support that he's had up until now. In the coming weeks, we have to watch to see whether he remains in that uh, envelope of support, because that will determine not only what happens to the war, but it may actually determine what happens to him. We've heard a report that a, a Chechen military unit that uh, he dispatched to Ukraine is actively hunting for President Zelensky, but in fact, President Zelensky is available and apparently in Kiev and nothing has been heard of that force. That could lie in the future, and that may change the calculus somewhat, because right now Zelensky has emerged as a veritable strongman, doing all the right things in leadership to really not only inspire his country, but to attract support from many different quarters, which has been quite intriguing to watch. Over to you, General. Yeah, thank you, Ranger Doug. Good comments. And uh, you brought up a point that, we need to think about uh, those uh, listeners and, and, and others that uh, maybe in the future of conversations, but the influence of business, powerful businesses internationally. It's always war affects business, but people sometimes don't realize how business affects war and maybe causes war and the financial impact during war, that what, what, how, how that affects outcomes. It's a, it's a great point, and it's for further discussion in the future. This leads into, as we wrap up, things to look for. And one thing that we, we uh, were asked about was when the world gangs up on Putin, cornering someone like Putin, what will his response be? If he doesn't achieve whatever his aims are, limited objective or all of Ukraine or whatever the case may be. And I, I think I understand several reasons that was brought up earlier about why he may do something like this. I mean, I think we'd probably be upset if there was a surrogate military. Let's just say it was Belarus in Mexico. Or go back to Kennedy's time with Russians in Cuba. I can understand where he in, in many ways, trying to think how the enemy thinks in this regard against, you know, Ukraine. Why the threat of the, How far does NATO have to push to the east? Was Poland and Romania and Bulgaria and the Baltic states enough 
Why, why, why was there any discussion and pushing to include Ukraine? Was that too much to NATO? These are things to think about maybe in a wrap-up comment. But cornering someone like Putin could be extremely dangerous. The other point in this particular fight, and actually it really started in Afghanistan, is the role of private citizens in war. Former special operations officers and NCOs getting people out of Afghanistan because they were upset with how it ended and how their brothers in arms may have been left there. For those mobilizing right now, and I can tell you right now there's quite a few, going over to Ukraine, Americans. And these are things to look for is how that, how, how does that, those veterans, what happens to those veterans later? Are they breaking the law? Or is it going to be fall out once the uh, dust settles? I, I don't know, but it's an issue. Possibly. So I'd like to, some of the comments I just made and what we've talked about tonight, I would like to go first to John, uh, maybe a closing comment on what I mentioned or just something that you want to bring up yourself about the theme of the show tonight. Go ahead, John. Thanks, General Grange. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned this whole issue about cornering somebody like Vladimir Putin because when Putin first came to power and when he was kind of orchestrating this himself, he had two biographies, biographical sketches done on him through the Russian media documentaries. And um, in one of those documentaries, he actually mentions he goes back to his childhood home and he talks about a cornered rat. And I'll tell you, it's interesting because, I mean, you can use this as a metaphor, but it's also a real insight into uh, Putin's soul, you know, and he refuses to be backed into a corner because he talked about this cornered rat that he saw as a, as a child and he saw how fierce it was. And uh, and that had a real impression on him. So he used that, that very example. Uh, I think that cornering Vladimir Putin is, is a very dangerous course of action. And I think that ultimately, you know, as you talk about possible compromise solutions and, uh, you know, and, and you mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, that's exactly... Uh, how John F. Kennedy allowed uh, Khrushchev to save a bit of face by uh, by stating that we wouldn't uh, reposition we wouldn't position uh, the Jupiter missiles in Turkey, right? So you know here, you know, do we really need to make Ukraine uh, a a NATO state? Um, and NATO, uh, give them NATO membership? Do they need EU membership? You know, um, we've, we've always kind of said, well, yes, uh, they ultimately down the road will. When you do that, what you end up doing is, is, is kind of furthering, further entrenching somebody like Vladimir Putin. And so I think a possible compromise solution that we may end up seeing is, is where we declare that NATO is not planning to do something and, and has no intention of doing something that we weren't going to do anyway. Um, if we acknowledge um, this reality, we could avert that conflict and it might, um, you know, that could otherwise destroy Ukraine and further destabilize Europe. And so it, from, from my perspective, it really kind of seems like a small price to pay. You know, other things that we could look out for, I think there's any number of different uh, scenarios that we that we could see possibly play out. 
You know, I, I think that there could be this kind of long, costly slog in Ukraine. You could see the economic collapse, the diplomatic isolation of Russia. Um, and, uh, you know, another scenario is you could be, you could have this kind of quagmire that develops in Ukraine. You could have this kind of long resistance on the part of Ukraine that develops that could cover more than a decade long war. And then finally, and I hope you don't see this, is a new Iron Curtain that um, you know, kind of reemerges across Europe. We all served during the Cold War and we know what that was like and we knew all the stresses, uh, as well. And so, you know, nobody has a crystal ball here, um, but this is a very rapidly uh, evolving landscape that we're going to continue to see. I mean, we've seen so much just during the last week, so it'll be definitely interesting to see, you know, where this ends up just even a week from now. Yeah, thank you, John. Great comments. Uh, right on point. And, and things to look for, I think we all want to stay tuned because the second, third effects can be extremely dangerous because of the weaponry and other reasons that certain people have. Mark, your closing comments, something to bring up at the end here? A couple thoughts, uh, General Grange. I, I, I do agree that with John that, you know, the, the next several weeks are really unpredictable um, because, you know, war itself is unpredictable. We've already, uh, as veterans, we've all experienced that. We know that, you know, no plan survives the opening shots of the war, and um, it's hard to get inside a mind like Vladimir Putin's. Having said that, I, I just want to offer a um, kind of a contra perspective on the expansion of NATO and from the Ukrainians' perspective, and, so, you know, some others, they may say, look, if, you know, if we had accepted, uh, if, if Ukraine had been accepted in NATO, there's no way that Putin would have ever invaded in the first place. And again, I think this goes to the some sort of you know diplomatic engagement with Russia and reassurances that the expansion of NATO is not intended um, as a direct encroachment on on Russia, though that is definitely how it's perceived. And I, I watched a speech by Putin earlier this week. Uh, I'm not sure when it was recorded, but he made specifically those points that if, if Russia had put, you know, troops in Mexico or troops in Canada, um, we would be we would be um, equally upset. Although I'm not sure that we would have invaded either um, Canada or uh, or Mexico uh, as a as a uh, consequence. The last thing I want to point out to, and you mentioned that, you know, uh, U.S. military personnel going to Afghanistan and some going to Ukraine. Um, I did think back to our own history in the Revolutionary War and how our own nation benefited from men uh, like von Steuben, uh, Pulaski, Kosciuszko, uh, Lafayette. And, I, you know, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, not far from uh, Kosciuszko High School. And... Um, so, you know, there's a, a long history of, uh, of, of people going over to serve the cause of freedom, and uh, we benefited from that. Um, I pray for those men that are over there and women, uh, that they make good decisions and, uh, you know, that this war stays within its kind of current boundaries um, and doesn't expand. But there certainly had a long history of folks uh, deciding to go and serve in those in, in foreign conflicts. Over. 
Thanks, Mark. And uh, I agree with you on the, the private citizen thing. It's interesting about if it should have been NATO, not NATO, Ukraine, I'm talking about. Uh, it's really how does Putin react to it? Because uh, this, this country is uh, really kind of an individual thing with a close group of military, in some cases, gangs, you know, mafia, uh, fuel, king, you know, power kings, etc. So, but anyway, he, you know, obviously the enemy has a vote, and uh, how he takes that is, is, is really, I guess, the issue. But, yeah, I guess that could go either way. I'd like to go, uh, Ranger Doug, closing remarks from you on our discussions tonight. Yes, I think that as we talked about in the previous program, as well as we've touched on it here, you know, you have to know your enemy, know yourself. And as Sun Tzu would say, you need not fear the outcome of a thousand battles. And when we look at Mr. Putin, I think that we've got to think in the same terms as perhaps what Kim Jong-un demonstrated when he employed VX in Kuala Lumpur against his half-brother. When you announce that you will use WMD, in simple assassinations, you're actually saying you've crossed the threshold already. So in, in Putin's mind, since he's used chemicals in this uh, series of Novichok attacks, this is a poison that's beyond VX. Novichok is Russian for the new kid in their slang, uh, but also has used polonium in the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko, uh, the former uh, KGB officer, and several others. It's a radioactive material ingested through tea. He's actually said he's not concerned about any conventions. So that tells us that he would use a, a weapon of mass destruction if necessary to equalize or change the calculus in the, in the fight. I think then that it comes down to the question as to whether he has the ability to order the use of such and would there be a need to do so. Now, the weapon he's said that he would deploy is what we call a low-yield nuclear weapon. That is either a weapon which dials back the effect of nuclear fallout, but may preserve uh, the gamma radiation that will actually kill from the radioactivity, but leave no perceptible trace. In other words, you don't get up a, a Chernobyl type of area. Then there's also the low yield, which produces a great blast, but uh, little in the way of radiation. Those are seen by uh, people that have them as being more acceptable than the standard nuclear weapon, which creates a great degree of blast, but also the fallout that keeps an area contaminated. Uh, this, I think, gives him the ability to think he can maybe deploy those, but I'm, I'm not certain where he would be able to deploy them. I believe at some point there would be the possibility that although, although he may order the use of such, uh, his general staff would probably resist that because I think they have settled on a war aim, which includes the joint of that uh, enclave in, in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk with uh, Crimea. And although that he found that he was not opposed and was able to move rather quickly at first, Ukraine is a vast country. I talked to Germans in the 70s who had fought there, and they described how as mechanized soldiers they had gone for about 30 days at a, at a pace of maybe 15 miles an hour because they were hampered by animal logistics, but that they didn't see any Russians for 30 days when crossing Ukraine. It works the same in reverse, especially given the mud and so forth. So while on air land and, and, and air drop troops in various places, you still have to get to them, much as we learned in the, the actions described in the film The Bridge Too Far. You have to get to them with a supporting column of not only combat power, but logistics. I think in the end, 
we may see that the current Russian government not only has trouble governing its own cities at this time, because there's a lot of unrest, I should say, and uh, they're actually talking about locking the place down. If you can't control your own cities, you'll have a hard time setting up a puppet government in an enemy country that uh, has a history with you of being a bitter enemy. I mean, if you look at what the Ukrainians call the Holodomor, which is about the same as Holocaust that occurred in the 30s, they, they greatly dislike the Russians. And I think that uh, while the Russians are attempting to portray themselves as rather careful attackers, not terrorizing the populace yet, if the Ukrainians rebel, it will just increase the body count and, and the Russian people most likely will, will persist upon their government to pull the troops back and likely then simply occupy that space I described. I do believe we're going to see violence erupt at some point because it's impossible to forestall, given what I understand about the Slavic culture. And although Putin may be not able to release nuclear weapons, he can cer certainly release the dogs of war, and that will change the calculus, I think. Over to you, General. Yes, yeah, so in summary, just a couple of real short comments to think about as we go forward. One is, and we didn't get a chance to get into this too much, but I know the people on this program understand it quite well. The power of partisans, armed populations. Now, I guess one reason why, you know, we have the Second Amendment. One reason why a communist country disarms its population is one of the first things they do. With Molotov cocktails, and by the way, there's some film footage watching them make them out of gallon containers. That's a hard Molotov cocktail to throw. It's like a basketball. But I guess it from a higher altitude of a three-story building has quite an effect. But anyway, the power of partisans is significant. But that's only achieved by leadership. And leadership is quite well displayed, though there is some sensationalism on television, obviously, because everybody needs a hero. But like Churchill, he's made a difference in his population. The president didn't leave like Ghani did in Afghanistan, as an example. And maybe that's not a bad, bad example, but when a leadership stays shoulder to shoulder with its popula his population or her population, it makes a difference, like Churchill. And there's no doubt that leadership's the cause and all else is the fact. Leadership makes a difference. And then the last comment is, I believe that Putin has to find, he's not going to reach his objective. He's going to only reach limited objectives. That's my opinion. And I think for sure he has to find an honorable outcome from this conflict. And so he's going to look at what is honorable for him. And he doesn't have much more time to do that because of his internal conflicts within Russia. I'll end there and say I appreciate John Penzel and Mark Mitchell and Ranger Doug and the show tonight. And the show, the last show last week that ties into this one. And I hope uh, everyone had a chance to, uh, to listen tonight that uh, we get questions from you so we can uh, uh, expand on, on those in, in our discussions. And, uh, and again, I want to thank all the veterans and those currently serving in uniform uh, for being a part of the, our program tonight if you're allowed to tune in. Thank you much. Appreciate it. God bless America. Through these fields of destruction, baptisms of fire, 
Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN Veterans Broadcast Network. If you are one of the 20 million veterans who served in the United States military, then this message is for you. During your time in the service, you might have experienced conditions and mishaps that have or will have an impact on your health and quality of life. Sometimes it takes years for these conditions to manifest themselves. Most veterans ignore the early warning signs and therefore miss opportunities that could have improved their health or extended their life. It is important that you identify underlying conditions early while you have a chance to make a difference. The VDAC software was created to help you identify presumptive service-connected conditions as well as assist you with filling out any of your VA disability forms. Not every veteran wants to file a claim. However, knowing what health issues to be aware of is an added benefit of living a long, healthy life. For those who want to file for their VA disability, the VDAC application greatly simplifies and expedites this process and therefore produces a perfectly filled out VA disability form with supporting material. For more information, go to nifv.org. Again, that's nifv.org. The goal of VDAC, the Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is to empower you, the veteran, with a quick and easy tool that aids you with filling out your VA disability forms. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com.